The scripture reading for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Welcome to our worship service again. Uh, it's great to see everyone here at the seminary and all of you joining us uh, through Zoom. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you once again for this time that we have together to be together in worship. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. So this is now the ninth sermon in a series of sermons I've been preaching on the topic of worship. Again, to review, we've been looking at three aspects of worship. First, the posture of the body. That is, we worship God by bowing and kneeling in reverence. Secondly, there is this orientation of our lives, our entire lives, that we come to God in worship, uh, in spirit and in truth, uh, with clean hands and a pure heart. And there is this third aspect of worship, what we do together on Sunday mornings, this liturgy. And we've looked at baptism, prayer, praise, proclamation of the word, communion. And today we want to consider offering. Bringing an offering to God is the first act of worship in the Bible. Genesis 4 tells us, so it came about in the course of time, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The desire to make an offering to God seems instinctual. And as we move through the book of Genesis, we can see that offerings were made to God sporadically and spontaneously in response to God's deliverance and to God's revelation of himself. For example, when the floodwaters finally receded from the face of the earth, Noah and his family went back on dry land and were told in Genesis 8 that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered 
burnt offerings on the altar in thanksgiving. Similarly, Abraham responded to God's revelation and promises by building an altar and presumably making uh, an offering. In Genesis 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Likewise, Jacob also built an altar and made an offering uh, upon his return from exile. Genesis 35, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where God had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Then as the Israelites became God's people in the wilderness, Moses received and instituted five main kinds of offerings as a part of their covenant with God. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, and the guilt offering. There were also other occasional offerings, such as that for purification, for decontamination, uh, for ordination, and things like that. Now, we, of course, don't need to make these sorts of offerings, uh, especially for the forgiveness of sins. As texts like Ephesians 5 and Hebrews 11 tell us, Jesus, the Passover Lamb of God, once and for all, completed the work and carried away the sins of the world. So we don't have to do that anymore. Unlike priests who had to stand there and offer daily sacrifices, Jesus sat down because the work has been completed once and for all. There is no longer a need to make an offering or a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. It's been done and finished. However, there is still a need for us to continue to make an offering. If you grew up in a Christian home, you probably associate offerings with tithes. You're probably taught that you're supposed to give 10% or a tithe of your income every year to the church. The word tithe is a simple translation of a word meaning uh, a tenth. And it appears for the first time in Genesis 14 when Abraham gave a tenth or a tithe uh, to King uh, Melchizedek after a military victory. Later, though, the people of Israel were commanded to give an annual tithe. Deuteronomy 14. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. And in Numbers 18, God says, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance. In return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. It was the, these offerings were given to God, but the tithe was used to support the work of the Levites who were chosen as priests on behalf of the people of Israel and who did not own land and therefore had no source of income or food. So our, our practice of tithing follows this, of giving a tenth to the church uh, from passages like this. What you may not be aware of, however, is that there is a second tithe commanded in the last words of Moses. Deuteronomy 14, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your own, in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, as before, 
But then there's this addition, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. And these words are repeated again by Moses in Deuteronomy 26. This second tithe is supposed to su su uh, support the Levites as with the first tithe, but it's also given for the sake of the most vulnerable members of their community, the immigrants, the orphans, the widows. Other ancient religions made an offering to their gods as a kind of appeasement to, to appease their anger or as a way of kind of bribing them to um, protect them from disasters and things like that. But in contrast, the offerings made by the ancient Israelites were commanded and given to fulfill a covenantal promise in thanksgiving to care for those who were in need. By doing that, by their shared commitments and love and care for one another, they demonstrated that they were God's people, that they were a different kind of people, that God is a different kind of God. They witnessed to the truth of God's provisions and care for them. That's the intent of giving a tithe, and especially the second tithe. So if any of you wants to be really biblical about tithing, then you ought to give at a minimum 13.3% of your income annually to fulfill these first two tithes, not 10%. And this doesn't include, of course, the kinds of occasional offerings that were made throughout the year for various occasions and festival. And I should note that some scholars believe that there is even a third tithe uh, that the Israelites were commanded to do. Now, as far as I know, no church or denomination intentionally practices giving an extra tithe every three years as a part of their regular offering as a part of a, an ongoing uh, relief measures for the weakest members of their community. Instead, churches typically uh, take up special one-time offerings when there is you know, natural disasters or pandemic and things like that. But I think it's in this spirit that Paul writes now to the Corinthians. Our reading today comes from that part of the letter in which Paul is writing about taking an offering for the poor among the church in Jerusalem. Paul commends them for their initial commitments and now encourages them to finish the work of collecting which they began earlier. And then he then offers some guidelines about giving. And I just want to highlight two this morning. First is in verse 6. He writes, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he, he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The implication is that we ought to sow bountifully, that we ought to give excessively. And throughout this passage that you heard, there is this incredible vocabulary of abundance. He writes that God is able to make all grace abound so that you always have all sufficiency in everything, that you may have an abundance of every good deed that he will not only supply your needs, but multiply your seed. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything, in all liberality, that God will fully supply, overflowing through many thanksgivings, the liberality of your contribution to all, 
because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This abundance and generosity is indescribable. This is what characterizes the God we serve. And so we as his people ought to do likewise in imitation. So trying to find ways to sow sparingly, to give the minimum amount when you are asked for something, being stingy, withholding, not sharing, means that we do not trust God and that we have not come to know his character. Instead, as Paul instructed Timothy 6, we who are rich, and God tells us we are rich in every subjective and objective measure of richness, we, all of us, are rich. He says we should do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Because our hope is in the God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy in excess, in abundance, in overflowing and indescribable abundance and generosity. That is the God we serve. I can tell you that I've always been very grateful for the generosity of this congregation. As our elders have pointed out to me numerous times, we have not had to make ministry decisions based on a lack of financial means. We've never had to say we can't do this because we don't have the resources to do that. Unlike many other churches, we do not have to do a stewardship campaign or a pledge drive every fall, as many churches do, because they expect to have a budget deficit. Instead, our, practices, our practice has been to let you know our budget at our annual congregational meeting and trust that you'll be faithful and generous in meeting it. And over the years, in nearly every year, as, as, as far as I can remember, your giving met or exceeded and sometimes far exceeded our needs. Because of the pandemic, and because we are not publishing our weekly um, offering numbers in our bulletins, uh, some of you might be wondering how we are doing uh, financially this year. And so I just thought I'd give you a quick update. As a significant percentage of our giving comes in at the end of the year, it's hard to know what the final offering will be. However, as you can see in this chart, your giving this year matches your giving from last year. None of us should take that for granted. When Congress passed the CARES Act back in March, some 12,000 out of about 17,000 Catholic churches applied for a loan through the payroll protection program. In one survey, some 40% of Protestant churches also applied for those loans. Considering the overall economic devastation that this country and the world is going through, we ought to be very thankful and humbled by the constancy and the ability to be able to give and for God's ongoing provisions for us. Your giving demonstrates exceptional generosity and faithfulness given the current circumstances. It has allowed us to meet all of our budgetary needs as usual, including the disbursement of additional gifts to our foreign missionary partners and to multiple local ministries involved in food security. 
So I want to thank you and ask you again just to continue what you've been doing and to continue to give in the same spirit of faithfulness and generosity as you always have. Paul's second principle of giving comes from verse 7. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul calls for intentionality in our giving. He insists on freedom in giving. It is a decision that you make with yourself and with God. You must do it as you have purposed in your heart. Giving must never become a matter of guilt or peer pressure or as a way to impress others. When you do any of that, it's completely useless. It's no longer an offering to God. Remember the story of Cain and Abel's offering. The book of Hebrews says that God accepted Abel's offering because it was given in faith and not Cain's because apparently his was not given in faith. You might also remember from back in July when Pastor Dohi shared the story of Ananias and Sapphira, how they gave an offering, but they lied about the amount that they were giving. It wasn't that they didn't give the full amount, but that they lied about it. That deceit led to their deaths. Cain, Ananias, and Sapphira, they had the wrong motivation, the wrong attitude about their giving, and that's what's important to God. That's what's important to God. Not the amount, but the attitude, the intentionality with which we give to God. I've shared with you uh, this before, but it's worth noting again that the Greek word translated as cheerful is hilaros, and our English word hilarious comes from this. God loves an extravagantly happy giver. In theory, the time that we give offering in the service ought to be the happiest moment of our worship service. God is delighted when we give with a spirit of cheerfulness. This is because such cheerfulness demonstrates that we understand God's generosity, that we give in a spirit of thankfulness for the abundance that God has supplied us with, and that we trust in God's uh, provisions to be able to supply all of our needs in abundance moving forward. Joyful giving is an expression of trust, and God is delighted by those who trust him. I mean, let's be real about this, right? God does not need our monies. He doesn't. Psalm 50 reminds us that God owns everything. Every beast in the forest is God's. All the cattle on a thousand hills, every bird, everything that moves is God's. All the world and everything that it contains is God's. I know that for uh, many organizations, NGOs, food pantries, and other social services, your attitude in giving doesn't really matter. As long as you, you, know, you write a fat check, as long as they meet their fundraising goals, that's all that matters. But in worshiping God, in offering to God, your attitude is absolutely vital. God doesn't need your giving, but God wants you to give and to grow in his likeness of generosity in your giving. And so we can grow as we practice generosity and increasingly trust God and find joy in our giving 
and as we enlarge our hearts to know that our giving is helping others. Let me close today with a few exhortations. First, consider offering a tithe. Many Christians say that they believe in tithing, but very few actually do it. And while it is true that there is no explicit command of tithing in the New Testament, it's still a very good starting point. I would encourage you to, rather than deciding on a particular amount to give every year, it's better to decide on giving a percentage every year. If offering 10% sounds like too big of a number, or if it sounds like it's too small of a number, start with a different percentage and strive to increase it from year to year. If you have not been in the habit of giving a tithe or of giving regularly, I want to encourage you to start as a part of your regular discipleship. I want to also encourage all the parents to start teaching your children about giving if you haven't done so already. When we first started this church, we made the decision very early on to give a tithe to missions. It was a way of tithing um, what we were receiving. 10% of our annual offering was automatically earmarked to be spent the following year on missions. In effect, it was kind of like that second tithe to help those who are most in need. And over the years, we've been able to increase that percentage so that it now stands at 15%. Every year, 15% of all your offerings are dedicated to the work of missions. In fact, one of the reasons that our budget increases every year is that uh, in most years, you give more than we ask for, and so that uh, it just it puts an additional amount that we get to spend the following year. And last year's giving was exceptional, and as it turns out, it was perfectly timed because it's really allowed us this year to be more flexible and to be more generous in meeting the many additional and unexpected needs that we encountered this year. Secondly, reconsider your offering. Reconsider your offering. I hope that you will consider adjusting your giving at least once a year. Instead of just giving whatever you gave the previous year out of habit, or giving sporadically and haphazardly, I want to encourage you to take some time to discuss and to pray over your giving with your family and to do it with intentionality. I remember when we first started this ministry, and it was mostly a, a campus, a college ministry, the giving uh, was sometimes pretty low. I know that college students don't have a lot of disposable income, but some were giving a dollar a week. They did that because they grew up as kids in the church and their mom or their dad just basically gave them a dollar before service started and that's the habit that they had. And so when they were in college, they never thought more about it. They just continued the practice that they had throughout grade school and high school. They didn't reconsider how and what they might give. It may be that your life situation this year means that you have to give less this year. That's fine. Or it may be that you are in a position to give more this year. That's fine too. As with all of your life, ask God how you might best use the resources that have been entrusted to you. Don't let your giving be a mindless habit 
but something, as Paul writes, that you have purposed in your heart and do it for the glory of God. And again, I would encourage all the parents to teach your children about intentional giving, motivated and rooted in generosity and cheerfulness. As an act of worship, I would also invite you to do it regularly and as frequently as possible. I know that most of our children bring an offering every week, but most of the adults do not. So I would encourage you, instead of making an offering once a year, do it every month or even every week if possible, just like your children. And third, offer more than a tithe. Offer more than a tithe. Offering is not just about money. There are many other offerings that you can make to God, and I want to encourage you to do so. Let me just suggest two this morning. First, as you know, during the offering time, we play an offertory. I love our praise leaders, and I'm thankful for them as they lead us in praise. However, I would love to see the rest of our congregation bring an offertory during that time. Give our praise leaders a little break from week to week. You all have so much talent, so much musical talent. And believe me, you don't have to be a good musician to offer a musical piece. I know this. My family tells me and reminds me all the time. Like all other offerings, it's the attitude with which it is given that is pleasing to God. So I encourage you all to offer to God a new song. You can do it from the comfort of your homes. You can come to the seminary and do it live. You can do a solo, do it with your family. You can get together remotely with your uh, FG, form a choir. All you young people, you know how to do all the technology so you can do this easily. If you're like me and are terrified of public live singing, you can record it, right? That's the gift of the lockdown. You can make this a pandemic project for yourself, for your family, so that instead of all the negative stuff that's been going on, you have this memory that you made a new offering to God. And the offertory doesn't have to be musical. It doesn't have to be singing. You could put a video together. You could read a poem. You could share a story. You could draw something and share that. You could even dance. The offertory is an open-ended invitation and opportunity for you to share your artistic gifts to bless the whole congregation and bring glory to God. I want to especially, again, ask our young people, you have so much creativity. Please unleash that and bless the congregation and glorify God with your gifts. Second, last month, Norm reminded us several times that announcements are a part of worship. Announcements inform us of opportunities for service. You know, some churches put the announcements at the beginning of their worship service as if they just want to get them out of the way before the real worship starts. We position the announcements after the sermon and the offering so that you can respond to the sermon so that it can be another opportunity of offering. It's a chance 
to make an additional offering. Perhaps it's by making or sending someone a meal. Perhaps it's temporarily lending your car to a missionary who's on furlough. Perhaps it's praying for someone who's moving out to that place which shall not be named. Perhaps it's joining a committee. Perhaps it's attending a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights at 9 o'clock. You all have talent and time in addition to your treasures. And so you can respond, you can make an offering by responding to the announcements. Paul writes, because of the proof given by this ministry that is in this giving, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. The ministry of offering is evidence of faith. Or as one translator put it, your giving proves the reality of your faith. Your giving demonstrates to everyone that what you claim about the gospel and about the character of God is true and they will glorify God because of it. In making your offerings with generosity and cheerfulness, you are bringing glory to God. So let's continue to give of ourselves fully to God and fully to one another, offering all that we have to God and to God's glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you because you are a God of abundance. Remind us, as it seems like so much has been taken away during this lockdown, that you are still the God who richly blesses us, that you are able to meet all of our needs in abundance. And God, as we have freely received, help us to freely give. Help us to give all that we have in a spirit of generosity and cheerfulness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.